Welcome to The War Room with David Orton, a commentary on the culture war. This podcast is entitled The Great Reset, Charting the Way Forward. In this and the next two podcasts, we're considering several recent events. The Great Reset of 2021 is announced by the World Economic Forum, COVID-19 and the Biden presidency. We'll take a look at their effect upon the wider culture and how God's people might best respond. At the turn of the millennium, I wrote that the period 1950 to 2025 represents a hinge of history on which swings a door to a new epoch of the kingdom of God. The Biden presidency will bring us to the very brink of that new era to 2025. But at the same time, I also wrote that the Twin Towers attack of 2001 signalled an acceleration of God's judgment on the West, already reaching through the Holocaust of two world wars. Parallel to the rise of the Islamic Jihad, however, has been that of militant secular humanism hand in glove with cultural Marxism and the usurpation of the West institutions of its legislatures, courts, universities, media and corporate boardrooms. The Biden presidency in tandem with the global elites and the COVID-19 pandemic's convenient segue into the World Economic Forum's Great Reset of 2021 will bring these movements to full maturity. All designed through dislocation of civil society and economic lockdown to lead the world's compliant masses into a dystopian nightmare of global governance where all personal property is willingly surrendered for a universal basic income. This objective and more is outlined in the West's published documents. If this were not so, their plans are so bizarre, it would not be believable. The lead time of God's mercy has expired. So, how must the church respond to this and How will she navigate the new cultural and political landscape, not just to survive, but to prosper? Like your computer or smartphone, to recover basic functionality, the church now needs to hit the reset button, completely overloaded with extraneous and conflicting system preferences. She must now recover her original factory settings. There are therefore five resets that the global church must undergo. One, partisan politics for the politics of the kingdom. Two, the myth of neutrality for a cultural gospel. Three, experientialism and false prophecy for the scriptures. Four, tribalism and sectarianism for apostolic unity. And five, eschatologies of defeat for Christ's victory in history. These resets cover five major biblical paradigms. One, the kingdom. Two, the gospel. Three, the spirit word balance. Four, unity. And five, victory. All five of these original settings are foundational to the church's prosperity and the world's salvation. Satan's strategy is therefore to muddy the waters for each of these biblical paradigms. But how does he do that? He uses scripture. In other words, he twists the word of God to make it say something 
other than what God actually said. This is why the world of theology is so conflicted with contrary positions on the scriptures. And I'm not just talking liberal theology. His satanic majesty engages in the theological enterprise so as to confound the purpose of God. For example, way back in the garden, our first parent's temptation, Genesis 3, we see Satan's strategy is a theological one. Now the serpent was more crafty or subtle than any other beast of the field. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so there's a shadow being cast over the clarity and the reliability of God's verbal communication. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Note something left out. If we go back to 2.16, the Lord said, You may freely eat of the trees of the garden. And so the focus on God's abundant invitation and his providential provision is lost as she's rehearsing inaccurately what God didn't actually say. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Replacing the word, you shall surely die, from certainty to possibility. And so here in the garden with our first parents, the word of God to them that was so clear is going through a process of questioning as to its actuality and then of actual twisting and replacing one word with another. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die and so Satan having the uh, the inn now um, reveals his whole agenda and he presents his counter communication to God's and so moving right down from our first parents the first man and woman the first human society who turned theologian and really rejected um, the full moral import, the binding authority of God's word. And so Satan, when uh, the second, rather the last Adam and the second man, the Lord Jesus Christ, appears on earth to succeed where Adam failed, Satan tempts him in like points. And so in Matthew 4, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Work a miracle for me. But he answered, It 
is written and citing Deuteronomy 8.3, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What's the issue? The word of God. And it's every word that comes from the mouth of God. Back in the garden, there were words left out as we just saw. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. So the devil now is using the theological ploy. And so citing Psalm 91, he says, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, citing Deuteronomy 6, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus passed the test and succeeded where Adam failed. The third example, we come into the ministry and era of the church, the apostles' ministry in the church in 2 Peter. Chapter 3, reading from verses 14 through 18, Peter says, Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. And listen to this, please. The ignorant and unstable twist. And so they take Paul's words, the ignorant and the unstable, take Paul's words and twist them. In the Greek, the word twist means to wrench or to torture by the rack. And so they dislocate the text from the context to create a pretext out of the text to say what they wanted to say from the beginning. And so the Bible is used for another agenda other than God's. And so the words of God are twisted to become the words of men. And they do this, Peter says, to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Note Peter's recognition of Paul's letters as canonical already. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. And so from the beginning of the very apostolic first century era, the apostles were confronting the issue of error, of false teachers. So let's have a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, reading verses 12 through 15, looking at Paul's own words. Paul in the city of Corinth was confronted with the same issue with false teachers or false apostles, or what he satirically called super apostles. And these were ones who were rejecting Paul's apostolic credentials 
and claiming that theirs were at least equal, if not superior to his. And what I'm uh, doing, I'll continue to do, Paul says, in order to undermine the claim of those <clears throat> who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do, claiming equality with Paul. But such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. Is it any wonder that the church is confused, therefore, over these five basic biblical paradigms? The kingdom, the gospel, the spirit word balance, unity and victory. These are fundamental to the church's prosperity and to its fulfillment of the Lord's mandate to teach nations to obey all that he has commanded, which he issued in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. By the way, don't forget to order your print copy of The Great Reset, Charting the Way Forward. Visit www.lifemessenger.org and click on the Publications tab. Today's podcast will consider the first two resets, one, the kingdom, and two, the gospel. In this regard, God's people must negotiate two resets already mentioned. One, partisan politics for the politics of the kingdom, and two, the myth of neutrality for a cultural gospel. First, she must reject partisan politics for the politics of the kingdom of God. She must rediscover that the law word of God provides the blueprint not only for personal salvation but also cultural redemption. Every political party and ideology must therefore be called up to the benchmark of God's word. This is not to ignore the fact that not all political parties are equal. Some more closely represent Christian verities than others, while the left, progressivism and socialism, is inherently statist. The right, individual freedom slash responsibility and free enterprise, historically championed limited government. However, while the conservative wing of politics inherited its values from the Judeo-Christian tradition of individual freedom and responsibility, with the West's rejection of its Christian foundations, there is increasingly less distinction of right from left. The former, infiltrated by the latter's cultural Marxism, blurring policy distinctions, both social and fiscal. As a manifestation of autonomous man, they alike pursue salvation through politics. They seek to recover paradise by coercion from the top down. For example, the West's global reset, true to the humanistic um, urge to paradise, advocates stronger state control and global governance to arrest fragmentation and entropy, in their own words, of which, in their view, nationalism is the primary symptom, evidenced in recent years, for example, by Brexit, and the election of Trump. 
This is assuming, of course, the Marxist interventionist economics, as the WEF does, and the state's warrant to redistribute wealth. They merely project onto the global economy this ideology's need for centralised control. Nonetheless, the politics of nationalism, for example, Trumpism and globalism, EU, Democrats and the GOP, both similarly appeal to increase centralised power and thence to force. Culturally, on the extreme end of the spectrum, this appeal to force is illustrated in the recent storming of the Capitol in Washington, D.C. by ultra-right-wing protesters. Or, alternatively, on the other end of the spectrum, the widespread riots of Trump's, uh, uh, after Trump's election and big tech's knee-jerk censorship of Trump himself and retired U.S. Congressman Ron Paul subsequent to the Capitol attack, including the deplatforming of Parler as a venue for alternative views. This alliance of big tech with the left happily coincides with the West's advocacy of the surveillance state, especially accelerated by COVID-19 tracing. Conservatives from centre-right to far-right, along with the left, all resort to increased authoritarian control of society, whether through the state or other agencies. This is seen in the increased state control of monetary policy, um, that is, over cent central banks, so as to ensure sufficient government funding to meet the challenge of COVID-19 and to artificially shore up economies after the shock of the lockdowns. This increased money supply will only exacerbate the boom-bust cycle of inflation-deflation and accelerate an eventual depression all sourced in the immorality of counterfeit money created by fractional reserve banking. Engendered by COVID-19 panic, an abnormally compliant populace has been conditioned. Draconian lockdowns, significantly prison terminology, mask wearing, social distancing, work from home, loss of employment and income, increased reliance on government handouts, over-policing and disproportionate penalties for non-compliance are all tearing at the fabric of a free civil society, producing isolation from and distrust of fellow citizens and above all, submission to the state's rule by decree. This coercion and compliance of the populace has also occurred through the gazetting of so-called hate crimes in the name of anti-discrimination and justice, the legislature and the executive encroach upon the West's historic liberties, freedom of association, freedom of expression and especially freedom of religion. Whether from the far-left communist or the far-right fascist, salvation through politics is inevitably totalitarian. For example, the fascist dictatorship of Nazi Germany, including its suppression of communism, and Franco's nationalist suppression of the same during the Spanish Civil War, or alternatively, the communist one-party systems of the Soviet Union and communist China and their totalitarian denial of human rights, and Robespierre's tyranny during the French Revolution. 
In each case, anarchy, moral, societal and political, led to tyranny. Similar to these historical examples of both fascist and communistic regimes, the West's cultural and political tumult is arcing toward totalitarianism as it disingenuously employs the language of freedom and fairness dancing to the tune of political correctness for legislative change and authoritarian gain. All hues of the political spectrum in differing measures resort to this revolutionist copybook propaganda and disinformation, subverting the meaning of language and thereby truth. Hence also the present phenomenon of fake news, belying the media's supposed objectivity and exposing its complicity in the West's cultural revolution. History demonstrates that revolutions must commandeer both the courts and the media to suppress the masses. So what is the answer? To rebuild a free and open society demands that the Christian Church recover a political theory grounded in the sovereignty of God. And this can only be discovered in the triune God of the Bible, in whom the age-old conflict of the one and the many is resolved. Political theory and history oscillates between these two polarities, from the one, tyranny, to the many, anarchy, and back again. The one inevitably leads to the other. Only under the sovereign God, who is himself a triunity of Father, Son and Spirit, the three in one, can each sphere of society be sovereign and yet not violate another. The Godhead is thus the ground and paradigm for man's social relationships. All individuals and societal spheres are ontologically equal but economically different. From the individual to the family, the church, to civil society and the state, while all equal under God, each functions within its distinct sphere. None presides governmentally over another beyond its biblically defined role. Nonetheless, they, they do overlap and interrelate according to each function. For example, the state does have jurisdiction over an individual, family or even a church if a legitimate criminal law, that, that is a biblically warranted one, is broken. Building on John Calvin, Abraham Kuyper, theologian, Prime Minister of the Netherlands and founder of the Free University of Amsterdam was the pioneer of this notion of sphere sovereignty. Under the doctrine of sphere sovereignty, as developed further by American Episcopalian scholar Ray Sutton, the kingdom of God comes progressively through four covenantal spheres, from the individual to the family to the church and to the state. And this occurs according to a progressive principle, and please hear this, of internal integrity leading to external integration. Beginning with the individual, internal integrity, that is, inner health according to each sphere's biblically defined 
nature and function enables that sphere to integrate externally with the next sphere. Healthy individuals integrate with the next larger sphere, the family. Healthy families integrate with the next, the church, and healthy churches integrate with civil society and the state. This ensures beginning in the regeneration of the individual that all spheres of society are renewed by the kingdom of God, not through coercion, but through the power of the gospel from the bottom up. All other spheres of society arc from one or more of these four covenantal spheres, the four spheres already listed to which God makes a covenant. For example, education not only arcs from the family, but also the church, not the state. And economics arcs from the individual family and church, but not the state. In fact, the state has no biblical warrant to engage in monetary policy or banking, let alone create fiat currency through fractional reserve banking. The free market working under biblical law would solve our monetary problems. In the politics of the kingdom, government is pluralistic. Beginning in self-government, it is shared by all spheres, each according to their biblical role. The state is not supreme. Its authority is warranted and delimited by God's word, and it governs only by consent of the individual. And hence, the humanistic drift to statism is forestalled. Even so, it must be noted that the state's authority, as biblically defined, Romans 13, 1-7, is coercive. It is the institution of compulsion, and as such, will inevitably operate accordingly if it transgresses beyond its delimited role into the other spheres. Hence, the dangerous potential of the state. Sphere sovereignty, however, does not preclude but rather mandates Christian involvement in the political sphere, although not through an aberrant urge to paradise through coercive power. Rather, the gospel of the kingdom of God is the power of God to salvation and to paradise. It is only the atoning death and resurrection of Christ that reverses sin and its results, fragmentation and entropy. Since Christ's resurrection, the world is no longer running down. Despite sin, because God is both creator and redeemer, the cosmos as man's habitation is not only sufficient and secure, but also under renovation. God not only sustains what he creates, but he also redeems it. The doctrines of creation and salvation form a coherent whole. Through the resurrection of Christ and the preaching of the gospel, the time-space world, the created world, has entered the regeneration and is now being rehabilitated. We are living in the administration of the fullness of times when God is bringing all things into one head, Christ, Ephesians 1.10, also Colossians chapter 1. All spheres of society, including the state, 
are integral to God's kingdom on earth. The gospel is thus the saving agency, not the state, nor for that matter the church. Partisan politics and the state are therefore not the kingdom of God. Nonetheless, to the degree politics and the state yield to the absolute and ultimate authority of God and his law word, they can serve it. The Bible contains blueprints for the role of the state, for example, justice for health, e.g. quarantine laws, banking and finance, e.g. prohibition of multiple indebtedness of a single asset, which then prohibits um, fractional reserve banking and so on. If biblical law was implemented, COVID-19 would be halted and our economic problems solved and with our individual freedoms intact. Biblical quarantine law does not quarantine the healthy. Subsequently, Christian involvement in politics is expressed in two ways. First, as citizens, by fulfilling their duty to vote, or additionally, by a vocational call to politics. And second, corporately, through the church's priestly duty to pray for all in authority and to teach the state her role under God and his word. But in both cases, the state is viewed as a delegated authority under the triune God of the Bible, not as an autonomous authority. Christ is Lord, not Caesar. Now we come to a key text which is misread so often and produces a completely wrong approach to the relationship of church and state and of Christianity to civil society. And it's John 18.36. Precisely because the kingdom of God, as John 18.36 says, is not of this world, we need not resort to political saviours and quick fixes, to partisan politics and power. Um, too many use this particular text to produce an escapist, a baptistic and a pietistic approach to the world. That is, we withdraw from the world into the church and into our spirituality. This is not what Jesus is advocating when he says the kingdom of God is not of this world. What he is saying is that God's servants appeal to a higher power, which is the very point of John 18.36, which is revealed in the next chapter, chapter 19. As a worldling, Pilate presumed the authority of his political office over Jesus, provoking Jesus' response, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Verse 11 of chapter 19. As Paul also taught concerning the institution of the state, there is no authority except from God, Romans 13.1. Consequently, God's authority extends to the state as instituted by him and is therefore accountable to him. For this very reason, the church's teaching ministry also extends to the state. As his servant, the state, 
it is obligated to obey and uphold God's righteous laws. Again, I cite Romans 13. This therefore also mandates Christian resistance within certain bounds, whether the state, um, when the state rather transgresses its divinely instituted limits, the Christian must obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29. The problem, however, of partisan politics cannot be solved without first exploding the myth of neutrality. This brings us to the second reset, the myth of neutrality for a cultural gospel. This demands an entire world and life view grounded in the sovereignty of God. Without it, we are not able to develop the politics of the kingdom of God. God's sovereignty as both creator and redeemer over the totality of human existence necessarily includes politics. Christ is either Lord of all or not at all. As Abraham Kuyper famously declared, there is not one inch of creation of which Christ doesn't say, mine, created male and female, in the image of God, man is therefore a covenant creature. Every person is thus a covenant keeper or covenant breaker and is inherently religious, either worshipping the creator God or the creature, Romans 1. Man is not neutral, neither religiously, ethically, nor intellectually. Apart from grace, he is at enmity with God. Romans 1, 18 and following vividly describes the, describes the human condition. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals and creeping things. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Romans 8, 7. Paul declares, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Colossians 1.21, he says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And John 15.18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Secularism, therefore, is not a benign ideology, no matter what it claims. The notion that the secular state is neutral must be seen for what it is, a delusion of the first water. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. What applies for individuals applies also for their corporate life in the state. There is no neutrality, whether as an individual 
or in his corporate expression through the state, man either worships the true God or a false God. As Henry Van Til rightly observed, culture is religion externalised. Secularism is another religion. With the Enlightenment and our present hypermodernism, man is now his own ultimate reference point, his own God, determining his own reality. And this plays out in the state. Every state inevitably legislates somebody's law. It will either be the sovereign creator God's or autonomous man's. There is no middle ground. No system of law is religiously or morally neutral. It has been rightly said that when a nation changes its God, it changes its laws. The West's cultural amnesia, willfully forgetting her Christian foundations and forsaking the personal infinite God, has led the English-speaking West to a shift from common law to positivist law. The former entails the humility of interpretation, biblical precedent law, whereas the latter entails the hubris of creation, Roman legislative law. With the rejection of its origins, the West has turned its back on transcendent law for purely imminent law and thus the tyranny of man's law over man. As a result, there is no appeal beyond man-made law, the law of the Medes and the Persians. Law, as the random product of a materialistic closed system, is thus considered as a social construct, as evolving and mutable, responding to changing times and conditions. It is thus shaped by the vagaries of passing fads and fashions. As a result, in a relativistic world, one man's food is another man's poison. What is freedom to one is slavery to another. Thus, the overturning of the age-old Christian definitions of marriage, family, sexuality and human significance. With the rejection of the world and life view of man, male and female, made in the image of God, human life as inherently sacred has been lost. This has opened the door to legalised abortion, euthanasia and assisted suicide. Instead of protecting life, the West has become a culture of death. The Christian Church must therefore rediscover the law of God in antithesis to the law of autonomous man. As concomitant, it must also rediscover that it is not that his law is not antithetical to the gospel, that in fact the law and the gospel are the foundation of not only of Christianity, but also of justice and law for society. And allied to this is the recovery of the biblical doctrine of the state as under God. And again, I cite Romans 13. And its corollary, the rejection of secularism's myth of neutrality. This, then, demands a Christian state, not an ecclesiocracy ruled by clerics, but rather a theocracy ruled by God. While this may affirm the separation of spheres of church and state, it does not affirm the separation of Christianity, of God, from the civil state. Contrary to popular mythology, the First Amendment of the American Constitution 
makes no reference to the separation of church and state. Rather, it simply states, and I quote, that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, end quote. The Founders' concern was not to institute a particular denomination as an established church over another. And I cite Jefferson. Furthermore, there is no evidence in the Constitution, the Acts of Congress, or in the Constitutions or the laws of the various states that stipulate a separation of church and state. Rather, the opposite is the case. A number of the states had established churches after the First Amendment, and their constitutions were not religiously neutral. For example, Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, Massachusetts, North Carolina. Only a state that places ultimacy in the triune God can offer true freedom. The alternative is a state that places ultimacy in man, in human tyranny. Even a democracy is a dictatorship of the 51% majority. Only a state under the God of the Bible can provide individual freedom, although held in balanced tension with individual responsibility. From its first century origins, by refusing Caesar as Lord, Christianity injected into world history the notion of limited government. The pagan world being dominated by absolute state power beyond which there was no appeal. Only the gospel of the kingdom of God, of God's government on earth, offers individual and political freedom. In the next episode, we'll consider the third reset, experientialism and false prophecy for the scriptures. To order your print copy of The Great Reset, Charting the Way Forward, visit www.lifemessenger.org and click on the Publications tab. You have been listening to The War Room with David Orton. For more, visit www.lifemessenger.org.